Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Matthew Frey. He's a relationship coach, blogger, and an author. Matthew's marriage ended because he left a glass next to the sink. Well, not exactly, but near enough. He spent the next few years recovering, reflecting, and writing about how a relationship can fall apart without anything catastrophic happening, and also working out how to stop it from happening again. Expect to learn how even good people can be bad spouses, why men and women aren't speaking the same language in most relationships, why most divorces are initiated by women, why trust is even more important than love, why peace and contentment are better life goals than happiness, and much more. What I like about Matthew's approach is that it's fundamentally hopeful. I'm not a fan of taking a nihilistic or despondent, cynical view of the future of relationships, even in a global dating market with Tinder and OnlyFans and, and Instagram and stuff like that. I still do fundamentally believe that relationships and marriage can work. Uh, and Matthew has taken the hard road to finding out some good tools for how you can keep yours together. In other news, this episode is brought to you by MyProtein. You need to start using their Clearway. It is by far the best protein that I've ever found. And if whatever you're using at the moment is making you feel uncomfortable or bloated or you don't like the taste of it, this is the solution for you. It looks and tastes like juice. It's light and fruity, but it has more protein in than a normal protein shake. And they even do a vegan version. If you're in the UK, their orange and mango is great. And if you're in the US, their strawberry flavor is fantastic. Also, you already know my protein make the best bars on the planet. Their layered bars are fantastic. Their gooey cookies are amazing if you throw them in the microwave for 30 seconds. Basically, their entire range is phenomenal. And if you need to stock up, if you're looking to add more protein into your diet, or if you're looking for health and sports supplements like multivitamins or creatine, or apparel like leggings and shorts and joggers and tops and all that stuff. You can get everything on one site. They ship internationally. They fulfill no matter where you are, America, UK, even in the USA. And you can get 37% or greater off everything site-wide. The maximum discount available is available with the code MODERNWISDOM. And you can unlock that by going to bit.ly slash proteinwisdom. That's my secret product page with everything that I use and recommend. And then the code MODERNWISDOM at checkout will get you that big fat discount. That's bit.ly slash proteinwisdom and the code MODERNWISDOM at checkout. In other other news. This episode is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Secure your browsing online and get access to the entire world's Netflix library for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. You do not know how good your life could be if you had access to the entire world's Netflix library because you're already paying for your membership. So why not pay an extra £1.59 or $2 a month and then get access to every other countries as well? It means you can use HBO Max or Disney Plus. You can get access to other territories on all of your streaming services. It works on your laptop, your phone, your iPad, even on your smart TV. So you can have it across unlimited devices and it stops hackers and websites from tracking your data, trying to steal your passwords, split testing you on prices for products that you are already buying. Plus, you can get an 83% discount, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee by going to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. So you can buy it and try it for 29 days. If you do not like it, they will give you your money back. That's surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. But now, please welcome Matthew Frey.
how did you end up being here talking about divorce? In 2013, my marriage ended. And I don't want to say that I didn't see it coming because there was an 18 month lead up to it where it was sort of like a slow decay and it was pretty awful and we were in different bedrooms, but there still was nothing that had prepared me for the experience of my wife literally like moving out, packing a suitcase, taking her little boy. I always want to make sure that people don't imagine like an angry woman kidnapping our child. She very peacefully and, and, and promising me that I'd see him tomorrow or the next day you know, drove and said, I'm going to be at my mom's though. That's what it was. I don't want to make it seem like she was a kidnap kidnapping our son, but, but she left and it was brutal. And I had a really difficult time with it. We'd been together for 12 years, married for nine of them. And I, I was 34 at the time, just about. And I I don't know. I, I never had like a frame of reference for anything that sucked that bad before. That was that sort of awful. And that was it. It was, it was my personal crisis. The, Everybody can only know what they know. Everybody can only have experienced whatever um, adversity or pain that they've experienced. And I don't want to make excuses for my relatively non-resilient, fragile life up to that point. But it was simply the most difficult thing I'd encountered. I, I hated it. And I had to get to work on figuring out what I'd done to contribute to it. I needed to selfishly protect my future self from having this happen again. And in that process, I believe I sort of evolved and came to some valuable insights and conclusions about ways in which I had a lot more power and influence in my relationship than I believed on the day she drove away, where I felt like a victim. And I I don't feel like a victim anymore. It's interesting that you talk about the exit being uh, unceremonial, unspectacular. You know, it it wasn't a someone threw a glass and then she stormed out and this, that, and the other. And I think you mentioned about how you think most relationships end with a whimper rather than a bang. Yeah. I think that there is, I mean, I don't, I I don't like to try to speak for everybody. I'll speak for me and trust that lots of people also thought and felt this way growing up when marriages ended and I heard about it, I always assumed somebody had done something sort of overtly horrible, sexual infidelity, physical abuse, a crime, you know, just major deceit, something, something really bad that we would all like sit around a table and agree, man, they definitely should have ended their marriage because of that awful thing that person did. And what I've come to believe in my work and in my personal life is that, that the great majority of relationships do not end that way, that they end from things that people want to fight about whether they should end over them. And those are conversations around somebody leaving a dish by the sink or a piece of laundry on the bedroom floor or the state of the the bathroom when somebody walks into it, you know, after somebody got ready and brushed their teeth in the morning. And these are the little things that are so easy to write off as benign, as inconsequential, as no big deal. And because one person cares about it and because the other person insists that it's not a problem, the it never gets repaired. The the disharmony never heals, never gets repaired. And it's my strong belief that those pile up hundreds of times, thousands of times over the duration of a relationship. They erode trust in a way that I think of as like a paper cut each time. And that the accumulation of these paper cuts compromises the stability, the integrity of the relationship. And then, you know, often it's something that really overtly bad does happen. And I don't necessarily mean infidelity or something, but like an external trauma, like, uh, often the death of a loved one or, or um, sickness, you know, somebody gets diagnosed with 
like a really scary disease. And those break relationships in which the foundation of like safety and trust has been eroded. The resiliency is already being damaged and then something heavy enough comes in that can snap that. That's what I believe the most common story and relationships are. But again, it's often not, it doesn't even require the big thing. It doesn't require the the health diagnosis or or the death in the family or anything like that. It, we can absolutely destroy, you know, relationships in these super slow ways. And finally, somebody has enough. Somebody has enough data points to say, this is going to happen forever. So I either have to voluntarily agree to stay in it or I have to leave. And I think, I, I hate to say this because so many people take it as if I'm blaming men. I'm not blaming men. I, I, I think most men are exceedingly decent people. I think they miscalculate for how much pain their partner experiences because of things they do or don't do that they're not even really aware of. So often I think men are sort of inadvertently putting their wives or girlfriends in a position in heteronormative relationships um, to like to make that decision. And um, it's it's a tough spot for people to be. Yeah, it's the blame game, which kind of is very common on the internet is something that I I really try to steer out of a lot. Um, You know, the sort of manosphere slash red pill and then the kind of whatever most recent wave of feminism slash women go in their own way movement both of these are they have kernels of truth in them but the problem is that they look at the problem through a too low resolution uh, viewpoint right it's all women are x or all men are x or this is the way to deal with the situation nobody should get married because it's a complete waste of time the entire institution of marriage is skewed against men or you need to be completely never open yourself up to men because men are going to be this sort of using abusing force and you go okay like look to me that doesn't seem like it moves us any closer to a, a a useful outcome and i think that one of the fundamental things I learned from David Buss, who's an evolutionary psychologist, one of the fathers of evolutionary psychology, is that he, there are different ways that men and women can interpret the same situation. And this isn't something conscious, right? Uh, there's an overestimation and an underestimation uh, bias when it comes to attraction. So you can have the same interaction go from a man to a woman and a woman to a man. They're both experiencing the same thing. In terms of self-report afterwards, the man presumes that the woman was way more interested in him than she was. And the woman presumes that the man was way less interested in her than he was. And you can scale this out replicably. It's been done at speed dating competitions, so on and so forth. That's kind of like a, I don't know, like a funny, relatively harmless example. But roll that clock forward. That kind of starts to explain how the boss might have seen the receptionist as actually having linked her eyes have lingered on him a little bit too long. And then that signal begins to get confused she thought she was being polite he thought she was being sort of flirty and you go okay so who's in the wrong here and you go well kind of not really anybody because both people acted on the situation that they saw right and this is what we're talking about uh, how i'm inferring that you're talking about the uh, symbolic significance of leaving glasses on the sink that to one person the language of leaving glasses on the sink doesn't mean anything at all and to another person, what the, how they interpret that situation is it's a, it's a really, really big deal. And understanding that men and women see the same situations in different ways is just such a great hack for dissolving conflict. Because what we presume is, hang on, this upset me. How can you not see that this would upset you too? Well, it's because I'm not seeing the same thing that you're seeing. Yes. Yeah, I... I posit that at the root of trust erosion in relationships 
is one person saying, hey, this upsets me or hurts me on some level. And the other person indicating that they shouldn't think or feel the thing that they do, essentially saying that shouldn't matter to you. That shouldn't be as painful or as important as you're making it out to be. And so, and when it's something that I did or didn't do, I just believe over time our partner doesn't trust us anymore. You know, I liken this scenario to the analogy or the metaphor that I use in the book is the idea of the field of optometry back in the 1700s. We hadn't scientifically proven colorblindness yet. So it's conceivable that two people, one person with color correct vision, one person with colorblindness could be standing there having a very honest debate about the color of a painting or a bushel of vegetables or a field of flowers. And both would be telling like the whole truth, but you can just sort of in your own mind, like see how these two people could come to, you know, fight and call each other names and have an enormous amount of conflict because you'd believe that this person has to be intentionally like screwing with you in order to have arrived at this conclusion. And it's, you know, feels deeply insulting to say that thing's orange when I know it's green. I know it's green. I see it right now. It's it's there. And it's funny, right? Because there's all sorts of like funny little things on the internet where people hear different things or they see a different color. And there's been sort of like famous examples of that in the last, I don't know, 10 years in pop culture. But I, I like to imagine like the optometry fairy, this like Wizard of Oz, like Good Witch of the North shows up out of the sky and like hands the people the glasses that would allow them to see the color that the other person saw. Or hell, just be there for optometrists being able to verify and whatever scientific method they use to verify it, that people literally see different colors because nobody had a frame of reference for that possibility. And I essentially think that's what we're talking about in relationships. I do think it manifests as like men do this, women do that a lot. I, I think there are examples where it's not always that way, where so I, I try not to like exclude people. I try really hard not to say men are always like doing, saying, thinking, feeling this and women are doing the opposite. Every, everything but, should be caveated with on average yes, beforehand. Sir. Absolutely. And that's how I think about it. It's sort of like statistically observably true most of the time. And, <laughs> that's a good uh, way yeah, to put it. Yeah. I mean, that's just like how I think about it. And I, and I think it's really important. It is, that is the idea that started me on this path. It was, was that framework, was that there other humans literally see and think and feel different things. And that sounds so ridiculous to emotionally intelligent, naturally empathetic people. But when you're me, where I'm from, that is a foreign concept that another person could describe something 100% differently than me and both could be true. And still be telling the truth. Yeah. yeah, it's not something that I understood. How have you come to see the relationship between trust and love? I believe in the context of a romantic relationship that a lot of people think love is is the the end all be all is the thing that you need that if you have enough love in place everything's going to be okay and i don't believe that i believe trust usurps love that it ranks higher if you had to like rank the conditions that need to exist for relationships to thrive to survive to last i just think trust ranks number one i think people routinely end relationships with people they love all of the time because I of a lack of trust day. Yeah. Yes. And again, and it's not. And I think a lot of people hear that word trust and they think, well, gee, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I'm, I'm a reliable person that goes to work and makes money and comes home and I don't gamble it away. What are they talking about? And it shows up in these really nuanced, subtle conversations where one person sees orange, the other person sees green. They're like, I see this differently than you. More give us, importantly, give us an example of that. Well, OK, so it's let's just the my most famous example is the dish by the sink. And I insisted 
that it was ridiculous for my wife to make a big deal out of a dish laying by the sink. Essentially, and I don't want to, a lot of people think this is a literal conversation about dishes and that I was some slob and that she had to pick up after me all the time. And that's not true. It was a drinking glass that I put water in so I could take like vitamins and stuff in the morning. And so I'd set it there just because it felt like an efficient way to go about it. And I didn't think it was this, I just thought it was ridiculous that she like kept like sort of like getting on me about it. The thing that hurts is not the dish being there. It's not. The thing that hurts is when somebody feels as if you've promised to love and care for them and be their adult partner always, and you simply have no respect and do not value what they think, what they feel, what their experiences are, the dish communicates, I'm going to choose me, my beliefs, and my feelings, my wants, my needs. I'm going to choose them over you every time our experiences don't align with one another. Every time I don't agree with the thing you're asking for, the thing that you want, the thing that you wish I'd do different. If I don't approve of the message, if I don't concur, I'm going to do what I want, even at the expense of what you think of what you feel. And I think that you can get away with that hundreds of times probably. But I believe these are the subtle paper cut moments that destroy trust, intimacy, and relationships. And finally, a person says to themselves, okay, let me just make it about my marriage. My wife finally learned that if I didn't agree with whatever she believed or whatever she felt, that I was always going to choose me over her. And that's where the trust like goes away. It's it's not trust in in terms of honesty. It's trust in terms of reliability, sustainability, consistency. It is, I don't trust this relationship's going to last, or even if the relationship does last, I calculate it's going to be even worse for me down the road than it is today. That's a dangerous place to put people in. People will, people, people that have a healthy amount of self-respect and self-love will exit a relationship in which they predict a year from now is going to be worse than today. Five years from now is going to be worse than today. Anyway, and I think we inadvertently put people in that situation a lot. What about the archetype of the person who knows that the relationship is already doomed to fail, but then doesn't have the bravery to leave? That seems to be that seems to be a very very common uh, situation that I see. Yeah, no, fair enough. The one I imagine, and I'd love to hear different ones that you imagine. The one I imagine when you say that is, and this is pretty stereotypical, is. Because seven out of 10, at least in the United States, seven out of 10 divorces are filed by women. So statistically, you know, women are being fed up, in my estimation, because of these sort of like subtle moments of trust erosion. And eventually they work up the courage to file for divorce. But there might be a number of months or years prior to that decision, right, where they held on. And I'm pretty generous about it. I think it's usually I'm staying together for my children. Um, I'm staying together. It could be fear-based. I'm staying together because I don't know what his reaction is going to be. I think for me, one of the ones that I would definitely see in the modern world, uh, financial reliance, uh, you know, it's increasingly difficult to be a single person supporting a, a household potentially with kids or without kids, sticking together for the children, sticking together because of a fear of what comes next. You know, I don't have the support structure that I should do. You know, we've got a world which is, connected more than ever before and yet more isolated than it's ever been as well so people you know you can't go and live with your facebook friend and right. I, yeah you're probably right when we're talking about this given the fact that seven out of ten divorces are instigated by women 
if we're talking about somebody that kind of knows the relationship should end and doesn't, on average, that's probably going to be women as well. And I'd be really interested for the women that are watching to throw it in the comments below or do whatever, because, you know, if you've stuck about in a relationship, I'd be very interested to work out what compelled you to stay and what what didn't compel you to go. Um, But one of the interesting things that I quite like that you come up with is that uh, even good people can be bad spouses. And that's such a like a a lovely way to frame it. And it also highlights the fact that uh, this is why I think a lot of the men in some of the sort of manosphere movements feel particularly embittered because they didn't do anything wrong in their vision, right? They got up, they went to work, they didn't cheat on their wife, they came home, they tried to pay the mortgage, they tried to be a this, that, and the other, um, and yet it still didn't work. And yet there was maybe the papercut syndrome, the glasses left on the side, the lack of validation, the lack of sense of belonging that that was needed to keep this going. Uh, and it, it, that sucks, man. Like, that's hard for me to hear men Absolutely. going through a situation where they were doing all of the things that men were told that they were supposed to do. You're supposed to work hard, be right by your woman, da 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 And then there's what? There's like this, I don't know, translation error that's occurred, which has meant that men are now, the good man still wasn't a good husband somehow. And squaring that circle it's it's tough and it's tough for the woman as well you know i think that a lot of women are are probably pretty empathetic and they know look this is a man who's working this is a man who's trying to provide for me and yet slowly over time the way that i feel about him just isn't working and there isn't anything he didn't cheat on me he didn't abuse me he didn't spend all of the money down at the casino and then tell me that it was on something else you know that it's it is this whimper not a bang and this is I don't know. It's so. It's such a bourgeois, luxurious way to to do something catastrophic. Does that make sense? Like it's so comfortable, it's so convenient, and yet it's completely, completely atrocious and painful. I, 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 I wish I could. I wish I could prove this with data. I really believe it's the most common story of relationships that end, and I, I hope that that's. A hopeful message. What I'm trying to do when I say good people can be bad spouses, can be bad partners. It's it's I'm trying to disassociate character from like the behavior. I, I don't think the harm that's caused in relationships is a result of anybody with ill character or ill intention. And what I really would hope guys will learn to do collectively is is stop with the defensive responses. Defensiveness is inherently invalidating, and when somebody says, I hurt, and then we make it about us, we make it about our good intentions, the person's pain never gets repaired. Trust never gets restored. And I know it might seem like a minor, inconsequential moment. And I know a lot of these guys might say, well, what about my pain? What about my mistrust? It's my belief that we're the first domino to fall most of the time. I will defend every guy in the world in which I don't believe he's the first domino to fall. A, a man inadvertently does something he thoughtlessly, not, and I don't mean thoughtlessly, like carelessly. I mean, it doesn't even occur to him because he's trying to do what he perceives to be his role in his relationship and his family, doing the right thing, often uh, as a provider, often. It's like, I'm a provider and I will not cause harm, is more or less like the two pillars on which he leans. And he's always believed that would be enough. And he had every reason to believe so based on the feedback of this person that said, I do, and that I want to be with you for the rest of my life. And then he goes and does it. 
But then, right, while he's like not paying attention in his blind spots, these little sort of pain points are occurring, these little teeny tiny moments, and they don't get repaired. And when they pile up over the course of 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the other person feels so hurt by this idea that I can't trust this person to behave in a way where the math result of their behavior isn't painful for me. And even worse, if I try to say something to about, say something to him about, if I try to recruit him to help like the painful thing stop, he gets really defensive or he implies that I'm wrong, that I'm crazy, that I'm stupid, that I'm weak, that I'm hypersensitive, that I'm too emotional because he doesn't know how to see the orange thing that I see as green or whatever, you know what I mean? And I just think that's a really tragic story. I, I really do. And I just think we need to learn how to value the idea of repair and safety and trust in our relationships even if the other person is saying something we don't calculate to be dangerous to be harmful that's like the great lesson doesn't matter what our beliefs are it doesn't matter what our intentions are the math result of things that happen in this world or things that we do absolutely can still result in pain for other people and we can deny that if we want i just posit you won't have healthy relationships with those people that feel pain feel free to disagree with with other people if you don't approve of the pain that they're claiming to feel I think if we want to have healthy relationships, we absolutely have to acknowledge that person's suffering, even if it seems really small, even if it's presenting like really small, like a dish by the sink or a conversation about laundry. And um, the people that learn how to see that and to acknowledge that and to repair this teeny tiny moment and not allow them to accumulate, I believe they'll never have the trust erosion. They'll never do the fallout of love thing. You talk about invalidation and consideration as two pillar habits that people need yeah. dig into that for me um all right so i think the low-hanging fruit of things that we do in our relationship the the easiest thing to practice doing habitually like, like mechanically to, to make things better is to learn how to validate instead of invalidate and a lot of guys think that i'm advocate they hear that i'm advocating for agreeing with your relationship partner no matter what and i promise i'm not doing that and so what that looked like in my marriage, there's the three distinct ways. I refer to it as the invalidation triple threat, this idea that there are three specific ways we invalidate somebody, even if our intention is not to invalidate them. I think we think of it as disagreeing, honestly, and that we should be allowed as adults to disagree with other people. And I think we can get away with this with virtually everybody in our world. I think it will destroy trust and intimacy with our romantic partners and probably with our children, too. Um my wife would come in the room and she'd say, hey, Matt, this bad thing happened. I feel bad about it. And version one of this invalidation trouble threat was I disagreed intellectually with what my wife is saying happened. She'd tell some story and how it made her feel bad. And I'd be like, that's not even what happened. This is what happened. So version one is I correct the mental intellectual experience she had. Version two, wife walks in the room, says, hey, this thing happened. I feel bad about it. And this time I'm fully on board that the event happened exactly as she says it did. But now I'm like, but why are you feeling that way about it? Why are you allowing that to affect you that much? A more normal or fair or appropriate reaction to that incident is to feel this way about it. And I try to correct her feelings this time instead of whatever she thought. And then version three is just defensiveness. Hey, Matt, this happened. I feel bad. And I'm like, wait a minute. Let me explain. Let me just try to explain to you what I was doing. And I feel like once you understand, you won't be mad at me anymore. You won't feel like I did anything to cause harm. And I just believe that the math result of those three patterns, uh, those three habitual responses that I think are patterns in relationships, it, it, the other person never gets told, 
I understand that this situation affected you, even if it didn't affect me. And you can trust me to like do something about it moving forward. You can trust me to cooperate that if it's something that I have the ability to influence, that I'm going to do it differently moving forward. Because I would never allow you to feel hurt just because I was too comfortable to like change my ways. And I just, that's the thing is I don't think any of these guys would do that. I don't think any of these guys would truly know that the wife, girlfriend, whoever they love hurts in a measurable way and say, I'm too comfortable to to do things differently. They literally don't believe that the scenario is as painful as they say. So a lot of guys are like, so what do you want from me? You want me to agree with her? I'm like, no, let's go through this thought exercise. And I, I, I love it when people are fathers because they identify with this really easily. I'm like, let's please imagine a small child being afraid of a monster hiding under their bed. So I imagine my son, he's 13 now, but he used to be four. And he was a threat when he was four to wake up crying hysterically because he was afraid of a monster under his bed. This didn't literally happen, but it could have absolutely happened any day. And this does happen in lots of families. And we as dad can run up to that room, open the door, survey the scene, find out he's upset because he thinks there's a monster under the bed. And I think the easiest, most logical way to try to solve that problem is to convince him he's mistaken about the presence of the monster. It's what I used to do, dude. There's no monster under the bed. The reason you're crying is, isn't even real. You know, you're overreacting right now. You don't need to cry this much. Everything's fine. And I might say something thoughtless, like go to sleep. You're fine. Your bedroom's safe. And if I'm not being my best self and I want to go watch sports on TV or go back to sleep, if it's the middle of the night, go to sleep. I don't have time for invisible monsters right now. And I might leave. I think there's some really important ideas here. One, I'm right. In this scenario, there isn't a monster there. I'm correct. So I, I think logic and reason are on my side. And I think that's where a lot of guys land in these conversations, this belief that they're the logical or the reasonable ones. I think there's a real danger in, in leaning on logic and reason in the context of trust and relationships. Um, also, fact two and three that I can't prove, but I hope you'll believe, I love my son intensely. He's my favorite person on earth. And I would never behave in a manner designed to inflict harm. I would never intentionally do something to her. And I think almost every husband in world history that truly loves his wife would say that same thing about his relationship partner. I love her. I, I'm, I'm right about this. And I would never intentionally do something to hurt her. So I'm just saying there's no monster under the bed. Like, relax. There's, what's the math result of that situation, though? As the dad of this kid, um, my son is still afraid of the monster. He still feels fear. Whether whether he believes there's still a monster there or not, sort of irrelevant. He's afraid. He's still crying. But but now he's abandoned, alone in the dark. Dad just implied he was dumb. He was crazy. He was weak. He wasn't good enough. He wasn't behaving the right way when he's afraid of a monster under the bed. And now what I'm saying is not that he's right and I'm wrong or vice versa. I'm saying my relationship just took a hit. My relationship suffered. And I don't think that kid, if that's how I always show up when he's suffering on some level, when he feels bad about something, whether it's fear or anger or sadness or whatever, and that's always how I respond to him. Eh, it's not as bad as you're making it out, son. Toughen up. Everything's going to be okay. I don't think I'm going to get to have a healthy relationship with him after three years, after five years, after 10 years. So this is a choice. And so what's the alternative look like? I think it's I go in that bedroom I hug my son. I say, buddy, I don't think there's a monster under the bed, but I'm really sorry that you're afraid right now. I mean, remember, we're talking to a four-year-old in this instance. I'm really sorry that you're afraid right now. Let's turn a light on. Let's make sure there's no monster under the bed. And I think the the great lesson and the one that applies most 
symbiotically or whatever with our adult relationships is the final idea. It's, son, whenever you're afraid, whenever you're hurt, whenever you're sad, whenever something's wrong, I want you to know you can always call mom, you can always call dad, and we're going to show up for you. We might not be able to fix what's wrong. We might not be able to like solve your problem for you, but you never have to feel like you're the only one alone, like dealing with this by yourself, suffering in this way. We're always going to be by your side during life's like crappy moments. And I think that's a profoundly simple yet powerful idea that we don't communicate to our adult relationship partners when we paper cut them with arguments about dishes and laundry and the state of the restroom and all sorts of things. Like I can't even begin to calculate for all the little fights different couples have with one another. But I think it's more or less the equivalent of there's no monster under the bed, so you shouldn't be afraid and you shouldn't be this upset with me. It's not useful who's correct or incorrect. It's not. What's useful is responding to somebody in pain in a manner that restores trust, that increases intimacy, that increases safety. And if we can apply that monster under the bed principle and think about wanting to have good relationships with our children, and we can apply that same idea to our adult romantic relationships, I think we can practice a habit of responding to people in a way that's useful for relationship health instead of a way that's inadvertently not useful. Sorry, there's, a, so long. <laughs> there's a guy, uh, Adam Lane Smith, psychotherapist from the Midwest, and I had him on the show last year. And he was talking about how uh, male depression and female depression both get treated like female depression. So female depression, the way that that's supposed to be fixed is by women being made to feel safe and comfortable and like they belong and like they're loved. And male depression gets treated the same way. But that's not what men want. They don't want that sensation. What they want is to feel like they have a purpose and the ability to achieve it. And this is uh, borne out in the way that men and women bond as well. So women bond through oxytocin, right? You have sex. That's the hormone that's released heavily for women. And it is for men too, but that's not one of the primary uh, bonding drugs. For them, it's vasopressin. And vasopressin is released when there is a challenge to overcome and that men can overcome it as well. And you see this get borne out in you know, the meme about women like people and men like things, like women are interested in people uh, and men are interested in things. So with all of this, one of the conversations, and for women that are listening as well, like think about how he sees the situation. The immediate knee-jerk response is going to be to try and apply some sort of rational logic to the situation to highlight the hypocrisy or the irrationality or the illogical nature of whatever it is that's coming up. And for the men, you need to think, look, it's not even about that. It's not about, you You can't fix this feeling problem with things logic. What you need to do is say, look, I understand. I hear you. I am here. You're validated. I, I'm, I'm listening. Now let's slowly step you through this. And then if the reverse happens with a man, you know, making him feel like he's safe and loved and belongs that might not be the best approach, perhaps for to stress test some of the things that he's got going on to hear him, to validate him, but then to step through bit by bit with some logic. And again, this is women need to speak men's language and men need to speak women's language in order to continue to move forward. Um, it's interesting to me as well, the way that your marriage actually ended. I think that that, that story is is probably pretty useful for people to hear. Can you go through that? 
Um, you might need to provide some clarity about exactly what you're asking. The situation was it her dad who'd yeah, passed? Yeah, thank you, thank yeah. you. No, you took me back the right way. I appreciate it. Yeah, approximately 18 months prior to our marriage ending. I should go back a little further than that. I don't remember the timeline exactly, but we lost we lost my father-in-law, my my wife's father, out of nowhere, completely unexpectedly. We'd had dinner with him the night before, and and the family, they were they were watching our son was with his grandparents. He was only maybe two years old at the time. And so the five of us, the grandparents and my wife and I and our son in a high chair were were having dinner and it was great. And then the very next night I come home and I get a call from her cousin saying, he had a heart attack and he's gone. And I'm like, oh my God. So I have to go like drop this news um, to her. And then the world was insane for several months because you're dealing with sort of the grief and the shock and the loss and then there's all these sort of like logistics things that you have to do. I mean, we had to like move her mother, you know, somewhere else. And 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 my wife at the time was responsible for that. She was like the manager of trying to clean out and sell the home that she grew up in, that she was born and raised in, and that we still went to on weekends and things like that. And that had to go away. There's so many layers of sort of trauma and grief and loss that she was experiencing while also trying to be a good daughter to her mother while also trying to raise our son. And here she is married to a guy where every time she's requested that something be done to alleviate her of some level of pain or to honor some, some, you know, pain point for her that was designed to say, I'm, I'm respected. I'm safe. I'm loved because of this thing here he's doing, you know, I didn't do it for, for the better part of a decade. And I just think when a person is put in that situation, that that's the outside trauma that that breaks the relationship. At least it was for us. She told me at dinner one night, I'm not sure I love you anymore. I'm not sure I want to be married anymore. And I, I pouted and took it really hard. And I moved into the guest room because I thought she was being unfair. I thought she was betraying me. I thought she was uh, s- implying that she might be, you know, thinking about quitting on our marriage. And I thought, you know, I hadn't done anything wrong. So you get your, you know, you get it together. I'm going to go in the guest room. And and once you straighten up and figure out what you want, you come tell me about it. And uh, 18 months later, she packed a suitcase and left. It, that was just the 18 most miserable months of my life where nothing positive happened in any way. And it's exactly the most wrong approach about anything that I've ever done. How does it feel to have your life direction upended so much from where you were expecting to go? Well, I actually think other than the literal loss of the two humans that, you know, once lived with me every day, there's there's a real shock when when people just disappear when they go away. I used to just I used to talk about how loud the silence could be, how loud a house that used to be full of life just felt so still and empty. It's really shocking and really unnerving. But I think that's a really powerful question that you just asked. I felt like divorce had robbed me of my past, meaning I'd wasted 12 years of my life in a relationship that was now gone. And it's like the thought process at the time is, well, hell, if I knew then what I know now, I would have invested in a different relationship and I wouldn't have wasted all this time, all these years. But I think maybe the most significant loss aside from the physical, aside from the literal humans, is this notion of like, what's going to, what's tomorrow going to be like? What's next year, five years, 10 years from now? 
every single thought I'd ever had, every daydream about imagining the future involved my family, involved she and I being old together on a front porch or whatever, you know, watching grandkids run around potentially. Who knows what it would be? It's sort of not relevant what it was. What was relevant was the idea that it takes all of that away. You, you, everything gets taken away. At least I think people who really truly value this idea of their marriage and or their family being intact. And it was, I mean, it was a tremendous loss for me. I, I don't want to whine about it and act like other people don't have greater traumas and greater losses. They certainly do. But for me, in a relativism way, it was the worst thing that I've ever known. And I think for a lot of people, it's the worst thing they ever know. And I think it's really tragic that the reason they get there is through a series of things they're not even paying attention to. What did the process of uh, reintegration into a somewhat normal life look like over the period after the divorce? I was just drinking for a while to try to numb it all. And I called, I'd never talked to a therapist in my life. I was sort of somebody that was like anti-therapy. I thought that was something like weak or crazy people did. I was a special guy. Like I, I needed a lot of help and didn't know it. And I called this therapist on a 1-800 number, you know, half crocked on vodka. And she's like, <laughs> she said, Matt, you should write, you should write this stuff. You should write your feelings. And I'm like, okay. And she obviously meant journal, like an adult. Um, but instead I just put it on the internet and I didn't think anybody would read it. But once the feedback started rolling in, I got really serious about not being like, I got really serious about not wanting to just be another jerk off on the internet, bad mouthing marriage and my ex-wife. And I, I needed, if, if I was going to literally have an audience that was paying attention to me, I wasn't going to take that lightly. I was going to be committed to trying to do something positive, do something meaningful. So finally I started writing what I perceived to be vulnerable stories about like the really like the true process I was going through mentally, emotionally, as I tried to assemble the story of my marriage, because the one I believed was obviously not true. I, or, or at least, or at least my, my wife's version of the marriage, I didn't understand. I needed to understand something because I needed to protect myself from having this happen again. I was so afraid I would end up another 12, 15 years from now, and the same thing would happen again. I was like absolutely terrified that that could happen. So I needed to get it. It was called an insurance policy. And it was extremely empowering to discover that all along I could have made radically different choices. They, were, they would have been subtle, though. You know, the, to me, they weren't obvious, but they were radically different that I think would have had like significantly different outcomes um, for the relationship. And that's essentially what my work's based on today is trying to help people identify these little everyday moments that they don't think are a very big deal, I frankly think are informing the direction of the relationship and they maybe just don't hurt enough to realize it yet. You say that feeling respected by one's wife is essential to living a purposeful and meaningful life. How is respect built up over time? If you're a man that wants to be respected, how do you do that? Is it given? Is it earned? I mean, I certainly thought I was entitled to it. You know, in the in the men do this, women do this, often dichotomy, as we've talked about, right? There's this idea of women wanting to be seen and heard and understood and cared for. And and the, and the, the quote unquote man side of the equation is this idea of having purpose 
and 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 respect. And I I'm I glad you talked. I'm glad you talked about this idea of um, what did you say? A challenge to overcome. This idea of having something to achieve, um, I think, is really important. I I think maybe men believe what I believed that I don't I don't I don't know that I can answer this in the spirit of the way that you're asking it. I believed I was entitled to respect because I never I never associated these so-called little things in relationships with the idea of being respected. It did, they would have never ever been connected. I thought she was wrong. Yeah. To it would have elevate been, a dish by the sink, right? To a marriage problem. I have a job. I'm working hard. I'm being loyal. I'm doing the things. Like that's what you're told that respect comes from. Yeah, it seems like you know the the common arc that we're finding here is the big things are still the big things, but the little things can also be the big things too. And you know you need to, as a man, cover that base if you want to ensure that your partner is going to feel happy and that you're going to continue to be respected. And I understand, man. Like I get why there is a uh, culture on the internet of men that feel like, well, look. Women's standards are just ridiculous. Like, why is it that I should have to do all of these things in order for me to just get the basic human uh, like value of respect, right? And you think, yeah, well, fair enough, man. Like, maybe that's a really good question that I don't particularly have an answer to, but this is these are the rules of the game. You go, well, why should I have to change my behavior? Why can't she change hers? And he goes, well... Maybe she is. Maybe there already are concessions yeah. that, as two people with penises, we can't really <laughs> like dip into working out how that happens. But yeah. I'm sure that there are lots and lots of things that women do as well that they have to make concessions on. And I do understand. I understand why it feels hard for men. And then you also see the seven out of ten divorces are instigated by women thing. And then you hear these stories about, oh, well, because you've got an international dating market that's facilitated by Tinder and OnlyFans and, and uh, Instagram, it means that what women are doing is they're just they're, um, finding the, the beta and then moving on to the alpha and doing all this yep. sort of stuff. I simply haven't had that experience reflected in the real world. Like, I, I understand that there are men out there who have had traumatic situations with women that have used them, that have left them for people that were able to offer them more resources or status or wealth or comfort or whatever it was that they wanted validation sure. in life. I haven't seen that with the women that are going out with the friends that I have around me, with the women that I've been out with. It simply doesn't map onto my experience. And I, I, I that gives me hope. And it, unfortunately, it sounds like, um, I don't know, it's like a, a rich kid saying, don't worry about money. <laughs> because I, I, I haven't encountered this problem and I don't disagree that other people have. But my point is that there are tons and tons and tons of very healthy, very well-balanced, very lovely women out there that would make fantastic wives. And the same goes for men. And this is, I've had so many of these conversations recently, man, like, you know, imbalances in the dating market, the evolutionary psychology that underpins why increasing female achievement with status and resources and education is making it ever diffi more difficult for them to find men that they're fundamentally attracted to. Like, this is, yeah. you know, the, the most interesting dynamic that I've discovered probably over the last year. Uh, and like the, the real core of what I'm trying to get to is, look, this is a um, ancestrally limbically psychologically evolutionarily psychographically novel situation for us to be in it is a new type of environment for everybody to be in 
And yeah, maybe it sucks more for some people than it does for others. But like this toothpaste isn't going back in the tube. Like we're not undoing women outperforming men in college. Like what are you going to do? They've, they've just got equality. Well, you can take it away from them. And then <laughs> like, you know, what, what politicians running on that? Like women, we're going to put you back in the kitchen to make your relationships better. And then on the flip side of that, you go, well, why is it that men are the ones that seem to be suffering in this? You know, women are kind of wistfully chasing after the guys that are across and above hypergamously, and men are the sexless underclass that don't get to to have any attention at the bottom. You know, you look at the stats on Tinder where 80%, the bottom 80% of men compete for the bottom 20% of women, and the top 80% of women compete for the top 20% of men. And you go, well, look, if you're in the bottom 80% of men, which almost all men are because sure. it's the bottom 80%, How's that fair? And you go, well, it's not. I understand that it's not. Well, why can't women fix their hypergamy? And you go, well, dude, I, I, why can't I fly? You know, <laughs> why, am I, why am I afraid of heights? You know, all of these things. Like there are certain parts of our biology which are maladapted to a modern environment. And this, for better or for worse right now, is the situation that we're in. And I think that the message I'm really, really trying to get across to people is that a hopeful view of relationships is going to be the best thing that you can do because there's a an easy cope here right like the cope is modern relationships and modern dating is completely fucked i don't need to invest my time in finding a woman because fundamentally they're only bothered about being gold diggers or blah 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 whatever and you go well dude like don't get me wrong you're probably not going to get hurt like you've in, you've congratulations right you've won the game of insulating yourself from the entire world outside congratulations well done maybe for some people that genuinely is a better option um but that inner citadel that they're retreating to i don't know like you've got what fucking 80 years on this planet is that really how you're going to progress through the rest of your days with this defeatist mentality especially from men that often talk about you know like overcoming adversity uh, not being a victim taking on that sort of victor uh, ideal you go, well, look, like, what would the victor do? He'd shoulder a burden, you know? He'd pick up a weight and carry it. And I, I really, really want to try and have a, a hopeful view of relationships for people. Yes, modern dating's difficult. Yes, divorces can suck. But dude, like, what else are you going to do with your time? What else are you going to do? Really? Retreat into this citadel again? No. Like, I, that's what I want people to take away. Like, look, there is, there is hope and there are principles... I'm, I'm adamant that almost everybody is like one or two principles away from a radically different life, right? If you'd known two principles from the stuff, maybe not all of them, but just a couple of them, you would have a radically different life. And so would pretty much everybody else. And that's the goal of, as far as I can see, sort of this modern insight, sense-making, wisdom-based communication stuff is like, look, where's the pitfalls? How do I avoid them? Where's the successes? How do I expedite getting towards them? And whether that be blending your finances in the right way, we had this amazing guy on doing data-driven tactics for accumulating wealth and stuff like, okay, should I max my 401k or should I put it all into the S&P or whatever, right? Like there's a principle, right? You just learn the principle or the principle about communicating with your spouse or the principle about why you should go sober 30 days out of every year or whatever it is. Just picking up those principles over time. But yeah, the principle about being hopeful around dating is one that I hope people take on board. I think so, too. I, I really do. I want to address a couple of the things that you said that I think are really important. Um, you talked about the idea of men saying, you know, why don't women need to change? Why does it have to be on me? 
the thing that I would ask for a smidge of compassion on the on the man side about is frequently pain is being experienced by the other person. And pain is not being experienced. You're frustrated. You're angry. It sucks. It's inconvenient. But pain is being experienced on the other side, I think, in the common heteronormative male-female relationship. And I, I think that's the chasm between why do we need to change? Because I don't think we should hurt people that we promise to love. I think that's bad, even if we don't mean to. I think we should accept responsibility for doing things differently so that the math result of our behavior isn't pain. And then on the side of like the dating marketplace, I just, I don't know. I'm a big, I'm in favor of two ideas. One, accept responsibility for partner selection. I do not, I'm so sorry for guys that have felt conned or duped or misled victims of, of cheaters and liars. Um, and I don't mean to like hold us up to some grand standard that that these guys are like somehow too dumb to have like been able to avoid. But I've, I've never been in a relationship, even a short little dating relationship with somebody that I felt conned by ever. I don't I believe strongly I can avoid. I, I, I know how to ask questions and discern whether somebody is sort of an awful, evil person or not. I'm aware there are anomalies out there. But I, I just I want to be responsible for for partner selection. I just think it's really, really important. I'm not. And then so, right, I'm not going to hurt somebody and they be mad at them that they don't want to be with me anymore. And if somebody does something awful to me, well, at the end of the day, it's still on me because I chose them. And I really wish people would. It's just empowering. I just think a victim mentality is is really dangerous to to believe that we don't have any control over what happens is really dangerous. We have an enormous amount of influence. Be somebody that people want to be with. And I understand that there are resources and genetics and all sorts of things that factor into this. But at the end of the day, I want the math results of my behavior to be attractive or at minimum not unattractive, not something that this so I meet somebody I don't want them five years from now to not want to be with me anymore because of the math of my behavior. And that's how I think about it. And, and maybe people think that that's a ridiculous idea, but I don't believe I've ever met anybody that would trick me, would keep me on the line for five years. I, I, I believe I push them away because of things I do or don't do. And I think that's the healthy way to think about it. Taking responsibility in that way seems to be I don't know, it, it's just the more hopeful way of looking at relationships. So I had the uh, director of behavioral science at Hinge on the show a couple of weeks ago, a lady called Logan Yuri, she's just written a new book, uh, How Not to Die Alone. And uh, she said she had, she had some really interesting insights about, she called it uh, intentional dating. And um, th there's something still icky about that, right? That uh, men that take how to date courses, like both from men and women, that it's a little bit like, well, hang on, is this not supposed to be like emergent and natural and part of your sort of male charisma, like the musk that comes out of you, it's just supposed to exude from you normally. And there's something I think previously might be slowly being degraded now that felt it was presumed to be a little bit icky somehow that this felt not manipulative but deficient in some way right that it was highlighting the fact that this man wasn't enough as he was so therefore he would need to become more when it's very sort of 
it's, I think there's something about the fact it's only one step away from a narcissist who's sort of playing the game, but not, not loving the game, so to speak. He's not invested in the game, but he's just learning, you know, the pick apart this sort of community of 2000, the early 2000s kind of laid the, the foundations for this. But do being deliberate and intentional about the way that you date. We're deliberate and intentional about everything else. Everybody that's listening to this show is deliberate and intentional about the time that they go to bed and about the macros that they eat during the day and about their hydration and about their training and the people that they spend time around and the type of Breville sandwich maker that they use and what note-taking app they decide that they're going to optimize their Kindle highlights with. And then you get to something like dating and you're like, oh, well, we'll just leave it up to Mother Nature. And you think, well... Maybe not. Maybe maybe there is a degree of where you could be over-intentional and kind of so deliberate that all of the love and, and presence and grace gets taken out of stuff. But definitely with this, you know, one or two principles away from something really important happening. Um, one of the things that I thought was really, really interesting that I wanted to discuss was that you talked about how having not been with your wife for quite a while and not being intimate with her for a long time, even before that that there was a, a, an extra level of existential pain to think about another man touching her. And this is something that I think is very, very difficult for men to explain to women what how this feels. The fact that you can have someone who you are no longer intimate with or maybe don't even particularly have a desire to be intimate with anymore. And yet there's something in your programming that causes you to feel like this sort of guttural pull that something or someone that was once yours now isn't. Sure. I, I mean, I, I think if it mattered, I, I, I cared I, a lot less today that we're nine years out now, literally, mathematically. It was April 1st, 2013, when she drove away. Um, it's... I, I really, it's not a thing I think about very much anymore. And I even go so far as to say, I like the dude that she's been with for like five or six years. He's a good guy. I, I had the experience of her dating somebody I, I wished would die. And I've never wanted anyone to die before. And I mean that. <clears throat> and I didn't really want him to die so awful. I, I, I don't even think that that's true. I just kind of wouldn't mind it if like an accident had befallen him. <laughs> right? That was it. But so much of it was about was about my son. So much of it was about like somebody I calculated to be an awful human being in my son's sphere. And yes, I was offended by the idea that you're talking about that like this gross person like got to be with her because that was what I perceived to be relatively soon after the marriage ended. And I think there's an important idea here for her. She'd probably been done for she like checked out quite 12 a while ago. to 18 to 24 months. And for me, it was like immediate and right now. And I, people need to understand that that is like a radically different experience. Once again, it's the orange. I see orange. They see green. It's all of that. <clears throat> but yeah, it's pretty bad. And I think a lot of people probably feel really awful about it when, when relationships end. And maybe even like a current dating partner that perceives you to like still want your ex because you're, I mean, I, I was, I've been accused of that um, early years ago. That, you know, I was dated a couple people that are like, he's still hung up on his ex. And I'm like, really not. I hung up on the idea that I messed up, I feel like, in my relationship and that it was the single greatest sort of misstep in my life. And by misstep, I really mean millions of them, you know, day in and day out. It was like 
what but you also, don't know can't kill you. That's an important learning experience, right? Like it's it's difficult. Maybe again, this is the what do women see, what do men see thing not working. That what you're looking at in retrospect now is a very valuable learning experience, a strategic learning experience from which you hopefully can, um, again, expedite success and, and avoid pitfalls. But from perhaps a woman's perspective, looking at you still ruminating about situations and stuff like that, it's not about logically, rationally, what can you pull out of this situation? It's about, it must be the emotions. It must be that he's still in love with his ex. And you go, well, no, there's a difference. And again, on average, I have tons and tons of female friends that are way, way more logical than some of my guy friends. But my <laughs> point is that I, I could see how that would be uh, an interpretation. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. So yeah, it was. I wrote about that at the beginning of the book. That I was having a really tough time with thinking about, I mean, I thought about it like every day. It was really awful. I was like sitting around miserable, drinking vodka, just upset and imagining her doing God knows what with, you know, this person that I thought was awful. And that was the, the value of it is I don't believe growth, change, evolution, if you will, occurs until standing pat until inertia the pain of inertia I, I have to the discomfort has to be i can't sit still anymore forgive me for not being able to get this out i need to, change is uncomfortable but the discomfort from the change is less severe than the discomfort of doing nothing because this feels so bad i can't stay like this ever again and that was the only thing in my life where that had ever been true about where I'd been motivated to action because it felt the idea of being stuck, of being still, of not doing anything different was too impossible to imagine. I'm like, I'm not going to subject myself to this identical thing happening again. And what's so interesting to me is how <clears throat> I went this way. And then you talked about like, right, the manosphere, like red pill guys. And I'm there who I get like the greatest amount of criticism from. If, if I have like intellectual critique of my work, it's from them. They believe that I'm advocating like men being effeminate and taking blame. And I'm, I promise I'm not. I'm, I'm just, we better give a shit about the experiences of someone else. I don't really care who we're with. And I also am not a marriage advocate. Don't get married. Don't date. Don't, don't do anything you don't want to do. If, if the mission is a relationship with another human being, I don't care who they are, you better value what they value the the requisite amount or they're going to choose to not be with you anymore they're not going to trust you anymore they're not going to perceive you to be reliable anymore and then they're going to want to go away and i don't understand why that is a uncomfortable concept for people I, I invite everyone to test that idea out for themselves i think it puts a lot of the onus on the guys if you Certainly do that does. which is one of the problems so i had jeffrey miller on the show uh he was basically the father of the sexual selection sexual dynamics movement when it comes to evolutionary psychology so he's the guy that began the red pill movement uh, from an academic standpoint right so everybody that's in the manosphere now that is sort of promulgating these ideas they're quoting jeffrey's own work back to him you know he's the guy that did the studies and he was writing this in the 90s and then in 2004 he released a book and then in 2013 he released another book called mate with uh, Tucker Max. Which, I have that book, yeah. Yeah, so Jeffrey's the, the academic uh, rocket power behind that, and Tucker's kind of like the, the uh, real-world uh, uh, stress testing, I guess you could say. <laughs> and um, it, it, dude, they say in Mate, they're talking about, and I asked him about this, that they spent so much time 
in the first chapter of Mate, explaining to men, this is a book for men, how to, how, what women want and how to give it to them, something like that. Like the most pick-up artist title ever, but it's, it's a fantastic book. And it, in the first chapter of it, they spend like five or ten pages explaining to men what it's like to be a woman in the dating market. Like in real graphic detail, like explaining what it feels like to be physically weaker than the people that you're choosing to go out on a date with and what it feels like to have to tell your girlfriends, if I don't message you by this time, then, you know, here's where I'm going to be or leave and find my iPhone on and all of this sort of stuff. Just passively, bro. Because again, there is a non-zero number of men out there that are assholes. And women, therefore, need to have a particular protection mechanism in place. What does it feel like to be judged primarily on your looks, that being the fundamental source of value that you have on the dating market? What does it feel like to be in competition where there is um, a... Uh, the the cash value or the price of sex continues to be degraded because women are increasingly prepared to have sex with less and less commitment from men because sex has now become decoupled from having babies and then norms around casual sex has continued to be degraded and blah, blah, blah. So if you're a woman who wants to wait for a few dates, that means that you're playing a game against the women that don't want to wait for a few dates because he can go and get sex on date two, but you'll want to make him, make him wait till date four. All of these things, pages, pages and pages and pages of these guys explaining it and i asked jeffrey about it and he said well yeah this is the thing that the sort of modern dating movement that's helping men is missing which is if you want to be effective in the dating market as a man maybe spend a nanosecond thinking about what it's like to be a woman what are you optimizing for here are you optimizing for yourself or are you optimizing for the person that you're trying to attract and yeah i i can understand why the position that you put across is uh triggering or uh makes men feel some men in the, in the manosphere feel dissatisfied me too because for them any uh any advocation that it's not women's fault is unacceptable <laughs> sure. right it is almost always about the fact that women are overly hypergamous that they're gold diggers that they're pre- prepared to leave the beta to fuck the alpha like that's the that's the the um rubric that that just kind of gets thrown at whatever the situation is um and yeah i think you know again like this is the more to me this is the more hopeful view man like that there are solutions out there that there are ways to optimize your dating life to be intentional to be deliberate to find somebody that's good for you that seems far more hopeful yeah i hope so and again i i heard everything you just said and i am sympathetic backslash empathetic to those guys but the, the the part that that leaves out is personal responsibility for partner selection. I, I just, that's a non-starter in a conversation with me. I, if you can't accept responsibility for the person you're going to share space with and share resources with and potentially share children with, I don't know how to have like a conversation about that. That's because that, if, if it's all women's fault, then it means you bear no responsibility in like who you choose to spend your life with and i i don't understand that you said when talking about what constitutes a good life that a better word than happiness might be contentment or peace or balance yeah maybe i think you're right i think when i try and think about what i optimize my life for it's peace i don't try and necessarily optimize it for peak experiences uh and this is one of the things that i try and tell my friends look dude like there is no value that you can place on your sanity when you have the decision to make between 
cheating on your on your girlfriend uh, because there's this like hot chick in a bar or whatever um and then going back like look if you're going to spend the next three weeks turning yourself inside out because you can't believe the person that you were did the thing that you did that th there is no what a hundred thousand pounds Two hundred thousand pounds. What would you pay to get those three weeks of your life back, remembering that time is something that you're never going to be able to to reclaim? You know, you're in the prime of your life, and you've spent all of this time obsessing over some terrible situation that you put yourself in. Yeah. So optimizing for sanity, for peace, for contentment, for balance—that's what I think people should be moving toward. And then from there, you have the opportunity to build towards something that's better. But that's you know, you can't put a price on sanity, and I, I think that that's what we should be protecting as much as we can. That's an incredibly valuable insight. You know, my experience with that was when my marriage was falling apart and I was sleeping in the guest room for 18 months or the nights afterward where I'd be up for two, three, four hours in the middle of the night, just simply unable to sleep, feeling the most miserable I've ever felt. And there's nowhere to hide from it. There's nowhere to run away from it. it comes to work with you and rides in the car with you and it does all the things. And um, right, I if there was some economical way to like, exchange money to make that stop i would have absolutely traded financial resources for it um but there isn't and i think there are probably many many wealthy people out there that have experienced that that have had the three four hours of being unable to sleep in the middle of the night of trying to concentrate in a high level executive meeting um but can't think about anything but like the horse show at home and right it doesn't matter how many zeros are in their bank account there's no peace. Well, that's the thing. Awful. Forget, you know, whether it is that we couldn't pay our way out of it, neither can Elon Musk. That's right. You know, there isn't a way to, to fix this. The, the ultimate cash value of sanity is infinite. Yeah. No, I think that's really important to think about. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect. I haven't achieved some incredible state of Zen where I feel good about myself all the time. I, I, I don't mean to imply that. But in the i believe strongly that healthy relationships are huge for providing stability in our lives and so being mindful of how we might be inadvertently like jeopardizing its integrity jeopardizing its longevity is a really valuable thought exercise and something to consider and practice new habits for because that is one of the things that will like just really mess up your life if you value the stability of the marriage and family. I don't want to place my values on other people. But if that's, I think most people care about their home life uh, being some sort of oasis from you know, the shit out in the world. Matthew Frey, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with what you do online, where should they go? Um, thank you. My home on the internet's matthewfrey.com. Just Matthew with two T's, Frey, F-R-A-Y. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's every social channel and email address and things like that. If anybody wants to participate in these conversations to say, Oh yeah, that's really great. Or you're a moron. I'm i I'm open to either conversation. I promise. Thanks man. I appreciate yeah. it. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that you might be listening but not subscribed. So go to Apple Podcasts and there's a little plus button in the top corner on the show page or a follow button on Spotify. It's the only way that you can ensure you will never miss an episode every Monday, Thursday and Saturday when they get uploaded. Also, 
Don't forget that you can receive a 37% or greater discount site-wide on everything from MyProtein by going to bit.ly slash proteinwisdom and the code modernwisdom at checkout. And you can get an 83% discount, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee from Surfshark VPN by going to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. I'll see you next time.